Hello and welcome to The Food Safety Dish, a production brought to you by the Local Food Safety Collaborative. I'm your host, Katherine Kavanaugh. The Local Food Safety Collaborative is a cooperative initiative established between the National Farmers Union Foundation and the FDA with the goal of providing training, education, and technical assistance to local food producers to ensure good food safety practices and compliance with the Food Safety Modernization Act. National Farmers Union is a grassroots farmer-driven organization that believes strong family agriculture is the basis for thriving communities. And a few's membership includes over 200,000 family farmers and ranchers across America. Farmers Union's grassroots structure promotes locally initiated policy priorities and educational topics established by their members. Learn more about National Farmers Union at www.nfu.org. Today, we will be talking all about aquaponics and hydroponics, what they are and how they work, the food safety risks and rewards of these systems, and how you might begin to incorporate a ponic system on your farm should you choose to venture there. I'm joined today by Sean Fogarty from the University of Vermont Extension. Sean Fogarty is a research specialist at the Northeast Center to Advance Food Safety, aka NECAFS, which is one of four USDA-funded regional centers in the United States based at the University of Vermont Extension. He holds a bachelor's degree in sustainable agriculture and a master's in agricultural sciences from the University of New Hampshire, where he operated large-scale experimental aquaponic systems as a part of his graduate research. Now he specializes in on-farm produce safety in the Northeast, and hydroponic and aquaponic food safety nationwide. Welcome to the Food Safety Dish, Sean. Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak to your audience, which I didn't realize the size of it till you were just saying it. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we're slowly working on getting more and more. But yeah, the goal is to get you know as many listeners as, as we can and I think this is a really interesting topic that was actually requested by a lot of the folks out of the research centers. They're saying a lot of growers are curious on this topic. So thank you for being here and sharing your expertise. To begin, can you distinguish what are aquaponics and hydroponics and what is the difference between those? Sure. So I'll start the most broadly. Um, so any of the ponics systems are going to be soilless. So that means they're divorced from the ground and the nutrients will be delivered to the plant roots via a liquid medium, which we call nutrient solution. Some researchers get a little excited about that terminology because when we call our water just water, it has a different connotation than a nutrient solution, which is a really dynamic environment. So in hydroponic crop production, um, the nutrients for the plants are sourced from either your conventional synthetic fertilizer salts, or they can come from organic sources, although that makes it more difficult. But no animals are directly involved in the production system. It's just plants. And then aquaponics combines two different types of production systems, those being aquaculture, which is fish farming, and hydroponics, which is the crop production system. So when mm -hmm. I say hydroponics, I include aquaponics as a category within that. Hmm. Um, so the fish in the aquaponics can be food fish or they can be ornamental. Um, but one thing I've learned in the last few years is that it's really important for that fish component to make money Otherwise, an aquaponic mm. operation will likely not be able to break even. 
Um, hmm. So within those two big categories, there are almost an infinite number of ways to set up these systems. So you might have the roots completely submerged in water all the time, or you might have them only exposed to the nutrient solution intermittently, like in a flood and drain sort of system. The roots can also be anchored in a solid medium, something like rock wool or a foam like an oasis cube or the expanded clay pebbles <laughs> or mm. um, a soilless potting medium. And then those systems can be situated indoors or outdoors or anywhere in between. So you have a lot of different sort of spectra we're playing around with here, um, different parameters. Yeah, I didn't realize there are so many different kinds of options you can have. What types of system designs do you see most commonly on farms? So in the past, I saw a lot of deep water um, floating raft systems. So these are the systems where you have a pond that's between like 6 and 12 inches deep, where the nutrient solution flows slowly through that pond. And on top of it, you float the plants in uh, styrofoam rafts. So I would see those along with um, some nutrient film technique channels. So that's also called NFT where you have a much smaller channel that the roots sit in and the water flows past. But this, this is starting to change a lot. As we have more people getting into the industry and greater investment, people are starting to try different types of system designs. And it seems like partially for food safety reasons, partially just because it's hard to manage such a large volume of water, the deep water mm -hmm. systems are sort of seen as a, a little less favorably these days than they used to be. Mm. So there's some tension between the need of growers to protect their intellectual property when they design a system and the need for educators to be able to create materials tailored to those systems mm. so that they're applicable mm -hmm. in a way that the grower understands and that the educators who are helping those growers also understand. We want everyone to be on the same page. But the fundamental approach to thinking about food safety, no matter what the uh, system design, will remain the same um, because we mm -hmm. understand sort of that there will be similar sources and roots of contamination. We just think about them a little differently. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, could you grow anything in a hydroponics or an aquaponics system or are there certain kinds of things that are easier or more commonly grown? Yeah, so people typically start with leafy greens, herbs, crops that are high value and also have a quick crop cycle so that you can mm -hmm. get a lot of them in in one year. And so if you compare, you know, an indoor leafy green system that can harvest every week to, a, you know, a field in California or Arizona, they might only have two or three lettuce head harvests per year. So that changes the intensity of the production really significantly. Um, mm -hmm. You also see a lot of vining crops like tomatoes and mm -hmm. cucumbers and people do peppers as well. But the number, you really can grow anything theoretically. It's just a matter of the economics. So um, I mm -hmm. had an advisor on my graduate committee who has a, a photo he loves to share of corn growing in an ebb and flood system, um, mm -hmm. which you would never, well, you wouldn't. <laughs> think to do that, um, but it's possible. 
and it was delicious mm. corn. So awesome. Yeah. How does it change the resource use of these things? Does it need more or less water if it's grown in a ponics system? Or yeah, can you speak a little yeah, bit about that? That's a great question. Um, because you know, there's water everywhere. You might think it uses a lot of water, but actually it uses very little water compared to conventional mm. agriculture because you're not losing water to infiltration through the ground where it's escaping the mm. plant roots or runoff mm -hmm. or um, evaporation just from the ground surface. The only time that you have water loss from the system, ideally, is through evapotranspiration. That's where the plants mm. are taking up the water and then releasing it into the air through their leaves. So, for example, in my uh, experimental systems at UNH, that's the University of New Hampshire, we replaced about 1% of our water volume per day. Hmm. So we were able to conserve, in flipping it around, 99% of our water from day to day. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and similarly, because you are being very precise with the amount of nutrients you're adding, you also can um, save on nutrient use because you're not having nutrient runoff into the environment. Mm -hmm. Wow, so it sounds definitely like this is the future of farming to a certain extent. Yeah, and then you have the other side of the resource use, which is the energy, and um, mm. that can be problematic, especially in colder climates where you really need a well-thought-out business plan, and then you also need your structure to be very efficient um, in mm -hmm. order to make the economics work. But in warmer climates, it's much easier because you can rely on the environment to provide a lot of that energy for you. Mm -hmm. So maybe a little bit more um, accessible in places that have more water constraints, perhaps that could be something in the desert areas. Maybe people could do more of. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I see a lot of research coming out of places like Italy and Israel, where they have a lot of really highly saline water and they have to save as much water as they can. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I imagine that some of the people listening might be interested in developing some kind of system or ponic production method for themselves. What would you recommend is one of the easiest and safest ways for beginners to incorporate this into their operation? Sure. I think, firstly, you want to make sure that if you're using some kind of structure, if you're growing in a building or a greenhouse, you want to assess the environment there and whether there are ways for wildlife or other, you know, routes for contamination to come in. Similarly to the way you might sort of look around a field and see where are the deer walking through and mm -hmm. destroying the plants. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to make sure that your structure is sound. If you're starting with something pre-existing that's in rough shape, you're going to have a lot harder time, especially when you're trying to control things like humidity. You're mm. going to need, um, if you're in an indoor system, you'll need an HVAC system that can handle the humidity and temperature needs of whatever you're growing. So the initial cost and the initial sort of thought process can be a, a pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend that people do their homework, but also play around with things that you're not going to sell. Like you can totally set up 
you know, a very small scale system just mm -hmm. to test, to make sure that you understand everything you need to know about the management of that system before you invest much into it. Mm -hmm. In terms of food safety specific things, I think the main thing to understand is that from a very a general perspective, in the field, we mainly worry about contamination from animals, whether those are wildlife or, you know, a nearby animal agriculture operation. But in an indoor or a protected production system, the primary vector for those pathogens or germs will be the people who are mm. walking in and out, moving throughout the operations and touching different parts of them. Um, and so the fact that you have water connecting your entire system means that if one of those people brings in a pathogen that you're worried about, it can easily spread throughout the entire system. So mm. you want to make sure that your worker health and hygiene training is really more than adequate. You, <laughs> you want it to be um, robust <laughs> so that notch. you are able to trust your, your supervisors and your personnel that you all are on the same page and that there's a culture of food safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that leads us really nicely into our next question. And you touched a little bit on this already, but you know, a lot of food safety education and trainings, they're, they're typically based on traditional field agriculture. Is there specific content tailored to hydroponic and aquaponic growers out there that people might be able to access? Yeah, so this gets a little bit more into my personal story because my career has sort of started in this information void. Hmm. Um, so I started out at NECAFs about two and a half years ago. I was brought on as a subject matter expert, you know, as a scientist mm -hmm. to help advise a project working on resources for these growers. And then I quickly was hired on to actually do that work as a staff member at NECAFs. Um, and we went through this process, uh, a pretty rigorous process of searching through the available materials where we didn't find very much. We do see some sort of state level efforts. For example, um, the Ohio State University has just published the second version of their hydroponic good agricultural practices training. Um, mm -hmm. And that does qualify as a GAPS training. Um, so if you are interested in that, I would check it out. That does have a cost associated with it. It's $150. And so we're trying to um, generate things that will be freely available for everyone mm -hmm. and have a national scope as well. So we started by talking to growers about what they needed just to understand sort of what was on their minds. In a lot of cases, food safety was not at the top of that list. Um, mm -hmm. So we understand <laughs> that in a lot of cases, it, it could be helpful for this information to be paired with other, mm -hmm. what might seem more practical information. Yeah. Seems to be a trend in food safety. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and training people effectively, um, you know, educating adults is a skill that is, I think undervalued and sort of mm. assume that we all can figure out how to train each other, but we're not all educated in how we learn. Right. So that's something I've been learning a lot about. So we finally settled on the need to develop some resources ourselves once we realized that there wasn't anything of great quality 
that was mm. freely available out there. And we sort of started with, if some of your listeners may be familiar with the grower training offered by the Produce Safety Alliance, mm -hmm. which is required for farms that are covered under the produce safety rule, but not required if you're exempt. A lot of folks will recommend that you still take the training, even if you are exempt. Mm -hmm. But having sat through it as an aquaponic grower, I found that most of the material was not directly applicable. I had to do some serious thinking about how this mm -hmm. would translate to my own situation. So we're getting to the point now where we released a set of five fact sheets that cover some of the really basic principles that were sort of pulled out of that PSA grower training, the general categories. And so those don't give, for example, system-specific guidance on how to do things, but more provide an approach for how to assess your own operation and what you need to be focused on there. Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, well, while that was going on, we applied for another grant to continue this work. Um, and so I'm actively working on resources now. I'm assessing the, the needs of the growers, but also the educators who work with them through extension and other services. And then the regulators who will be inspecting those growers. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to provide resources for all of those audiences so that we're speaking the same language and that so so that a grower and an inspector don't have misunderstandings about what's required and what's actually happening on the farm. Mm -hmm. Yes, good to consider all stakeholders there. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about the water spreading risk that aquaponics and hydroponics growers might have to consider. Are there other risks that these kinds of growers have to consider that non-ponics growers don't have to consider? Yeah. So I think I'll start with one that is actually shared, but the way you think about it might be different. So hand washing is really important in all agricultural operations, but it, it's specifically important in Tonics operations to understand when is the right time to wash your hands or change your gloves. Mm. Um, several folks that I've spoken to have observed in operations, you know, for example, um, someone lifting a foam raft out of a pond with gloved hands, putting that raft down, and then actually harvesting the produce with those same hands without either washing their hands or changing the gloves. Um, and so there I saw sort of two issues. One is not understanding where glove use is actually beneficial, but then also we need to help folks to see the, the possible transmission routes for the pathogens we're worried about. And one of those routes can be from the production water to the produce through a person's hands. Another thing that is very different is the indoor versus outdoor consideration. So 
if you're, for example, in Hawaii and you have an outdoor hydroponic operation, you might be concerned about things like banana slugs that can transmit human pathogens. But if you're in New Hampshire, where I am, that would not be on your mind at all. You would be mm -hmm. in a controlled environment. And I would be more concerned about rodents and birds. And so the more you can do to seal off the possible routes for those types of animals to get into your operation, the better. And that can look like, you know, if you don't have a concrete floor, maybe you have to bury some hardware cloth around the edges of your high tunnel or something like mm -hmm. that. Yes, I can imagine you don't want any critters to get into that water and have an unfortunate end. Right. Right. That's the thing. If one bird poops into your production pond, then that can spread to the whole system and you don't want to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do the indoor or controlled growing spaces change the risk factor for pathogen introduction and spread? We talked a little bit about that, but can you also say like what kinds of pathogens and specific places in these operations are most vulnerable to spread? Certainly. So the types of pathogens, it's interesting because it, it, there is a significant difference in what we are looking for and what we would expect to find compared to a field where we'd be most concerned about E. coli, which comes from mammals, mm -hmm. from the gut. Whereas in an indoor environment, we would be more worried about things like listeria, which lives in soils and can survive in corners and crevices really, really well, especially in moist, you know, temperate environments. So that's one thing to think about. And then salmonella is another consideration because it, it's, it's easier for a bird to get into your operation than for a mammal. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, I've even found a frog on my lettuce one day, and those can transmit salmonella. Mm. So we do have a difference there in the pathogens we're concerned about. But we don't yet have good guidance on which pathogens to test for as a, great, as a good indicator of your risk level, because we need to do more science there. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the fish health. Could you talk a little bit about how the fish health affects the operation? And are there any certain kinds of diseases that are spread via fish? Yeah, so fish health is important to food safety indirectly. Um, we don't typically associate any of the foodborne pathogens like E. coli or salmonella with a fish gut. The bacteria that are living in a fish gut actually are reflective of the environment, the water that they're living in. Mm -hmm. So they don't harbor, you know, things like E. coli um, as a part of their um, digestive system. Mm -hmm. But they can host other pathogens that are opportunistic. So um, these are pathogens that wouldn't typically affect a healthy person. Mm -hmm. But if you have someone who's immunocompromised or pregnant or a small child, you would be really concerned about them. Those are things like Klebsiella pneumoniae, um, Aramonis hydrophila, 
these are things that people, most people have not heard about yep. because we don't see a lot yeah, of those but infections. They sound and that's scary, great. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So as as the industry grows, we might start to understand better um, those pathogens that might be of concern mm-hmm. there. But for now, I just advise, you know, if you do have an immunocompromised person on your staff, to just be aware of the possibility there mm-hmm. and to take precautions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great segue into talking about prevention and cleaning. Is it possible to introduce a clean break into certain kinds of Ponix operations? And if so, which ones? Yeah, that's a great question because it's, it's, I've heard it so many times. Every time we meet to talk about these things among researchers and educators, this idea comes up. So a clean break is part of a process where you have the opportunity to completely sanitize or disinfect the system or components that you're talking about. So when we're talking about hydroponics and aquaponics, the main thing here is we need a a point in time where the system components are Mm. dry. Um, If they're constantly, you know, transmitting or submerged in the nutrient solution, we're never going to have the opportunity to sanitize Mm. those surfaces. So in order to do so, you need to be able to remove the plants and have a time where you're not going to be worried about the disinfection Mm. chemicals interacting with your crops and impacting your yield. So in systems like nutrient film technique, where you have these skinny plastic channels and you have quick crop cycles with things like leafy greens, Mm -hmm. there you could theoretically every you know, at a certain interval, you could break the whole system down and then rebuild it and start it up again. It's not something I see mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and that might be because we don't have good guidance about what that length of time should mm-hmm. be or, you know, any of the specifics for that. In an ebb and flood system, you also can have a clean break. Um, I know a grower in Michigan who they sanitize their system monthly. Mm. And that was sort of, a, you know, a decision made largely for convenience, like for operational mm. convenience, mm-hmm. because it worked for them. Um, it's not really based on any science, but it's a lot better than the other right. <laughs> approaches I've seen, because at least they are being proactive mm-hmm. and they have a schedule and there's documentation mm-hmm. for that process. Maybe this isn't the best question, or maybe you do get this question, but can you put sanitizer in the ponic system? How does that work? Yeah, so first I'll say that in aquaponics, the answer is pretty much no. Yeah. Um, because the the chemical would have to be labeled for use with the fish and mm-hmm. with the plants and for the specific use, and no chemicals are labeled in that way. Mm-hmm especially if you're using the fish for food. Oh, okay, um, gotcha. If you're not, you have a little more leeway there because you're not worried about the, the fish safety regulations and mm. the fish health regulations. But it more broadly, the research that has been done so far has not, it, you can't conclude that there's any value in adding a, constant sanitizer Mm. drip into the nutrient solution. 
And part of that is because that nutrient solution is so complex. Hmm. So the chemistry of whatever sanitizer you're using will interact with that solution differently than it might on another farm that's has a different sort of hmm. composition yeah. of their solution. That makes so sense. it's diff, it's very difficult to provide appropriate concentrations and, you know, directions on the label when everyone's sort of in a, a different situation. Hmm. That makes sense. Um, and also, you know, with most of those sanitizers, you see yield impacts that are not worth it. Um, mm. Yeah. So more research is required until we have better yes. answers on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people people are very interested in the idea. And so I think that research will keep happening. Mm -hmm. um, but I tend to lean more toward biological Mm -hmm. uh, a biological approach and trying to sort of create an ecosystem yes. that will um, prevent the path if a pathogen does come in um, that will simply prevent it from establishing mm -hmm. because we have a lot of great microbes that are already living in the system um, that are going to outcompete that pathogen as long mm -hmm. as it's a healthy ecosystem yeah you're like quite literally making a little world of little creatures. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty amazing biota. and it's fun to research <laughs> Yeah, um, because it's it's a little simpler than a natural ecosystem, but it's still really complicated mm -hmm. and there's a lot we need to learn about Definitely. how it works. Do you have any good tips on maintaining a clean facility around uh, specifically food contact surfaces? Let's say, for example, you can't use, you know, a pressure washer to clean algae or maybe there's biofilm that you can't quite clean. So what are the best ways to prevent these? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the issue of like a pressure washer because it might be enticing to, you know, <laughs> easily and effectively remove all the biofilm from your floor, say, if you have a concrete floor. Mm-hmm. But you have to think about where all of that spray is going yeah. and whether it might impact your produce. And if you're using a pressure washer inside, you're likely to have overspray impact, you know, most of the area around you mm. in little mm -hmm. tiny aerosolized droplets. Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend that except in, for example, a pack house where you're able to remove all the product that might be affected before you mm. do that process. And then in terms of food contact surfaces, a lot of it is similar to what you would consider in traditional agriculture. Things like your tools are a great way to transmit things from one plant to, or from mm -hmm. one piece of produce to another. Say you're cutting heads of lettuce, that knife can be a, a cross-contamination vector. Mm -hmm. So you want to think about whether you need a sanitizing step in between harvests or some other mitigation for that. I think one big thing is that you can reduce the number of food contact surfaces hmm. by using smart design choices. Hmm. And that reduces your workload on, you know, a weekly basis if you are if you simply prevent contact between your produce and the different surfaces you might be concerned about. Um, so for example, if you have um, tomatoes um, growing in Dutch buckets, which I've seen before, you might have some of the, the bottom 
clusters actually touching the either the top of the substrate or the top of the bucket. If you're able to string those up in a way that prevents that, then you don't mm. have to worry about cleaning all of those Dutch bucket tops, which might be very, which mm -hmm. might be impossible. So if you're faced with a large labor cost in order to implement something, you might be able to creatively reduce that by changing the way that the system works. So uh, creativity is a, you know, a, a farmer trait, regardless of the system you're working on. Yes. <laughs> um, and we always see really uh, interesting ways that people work around things. Great. You, you segued right into my next question, which I think you could probably expand on, but what are some other hygienic design principles growers can incorporate to minimize risk? Yeah, one good example that was described to me recently was a conveyor system for, for harvested produce where they had changed the conveyor belt from just one solid piece of rubber to this plastic, flexible sort of, it, it looked almost like a, a tank uh, tread. So it had all these hinges and little crevices. And so that change, while there may have been good reasons for it, introduced a lot of places where uh, biofilms and pathogens could hide. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about the, the crevices, the cracks, the places mm -hmm. where you won't be able to clean effectively, those are going to be the most troublesome places. And that's going to be where you might end up finding something that's persisting in your operation if you're unable to sort of get rid of it through other methods, it might be because you have something that's just like living in a crack that everyone has forgotten about. Mm. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like having smooth surfaces yep. like makes it so much easier. And it's, it's common sense, but it's important um, to think about it seriously because like if you compare the process of cleaning a harvest bin that has flat sides inside versus one that's all bendy, the way that they mm -hmm. tend to make boxes, it could be a significant amount of time that you're wasting just sort of like working around all those little mm -hmm. um, corners. Yeah. So like it, it sounds simple, but the simpler the equipment, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the fewer moving pieces, the mm. easier it will be to maintain it in the way that you need to, to make sure your food's safe. Yeah. Keep it simple, Sean. <laughs> yeah. <as it's. laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um, and I really like, um, you know, some of the suppliers provide like color coded tools, like things like, uh, I don't know. I can't even think of an example right now. Um, but you might have one color for the production area, one color for the pack house, and things mm -hmm. never move between the, right. the, the places. Yeah. Yeah. That was a bad description. That's okay. <laughs> no, I can imagine too, because, you know, you're working primarily with water and water gets into, you know, I like to think water is like the great equalizer and it gets into everything. And, it, you know, that's so trying to facilitate your processes so that way it doesn't collect in points is probably going to make everybody's life a lot easier and safer probably as well. Yeah. And you just reminded me of like one of the main tenets here that brings me back to like the produce safety rule. So 
if you have contact between your production water and your produce, then you have to be managing the quality of that water so that you know that it doesn't have detectable E. coli or, you know, you have to follow the production water rules in the produce safety rule. If you prevent the contact through your system design between the produce and the water um, so that through the process, your edible portion never touches that production water, then mm -hmm. you're off the hook in terms of that water quality, at least as far as the rule is concerned. You might still want to do some tests so that you understand your water quality, but uh, you're not required by the law to manage the microbiological quality of your production water when you prevent the contact with the edible portion of the produce. Mm -hmm. What about worker health and hygiene in these types of operations? I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what do growers need to consider that is different or similar to regular growing operations? Yeah, so in traditional field agriculture, you probably don't have a lot of contact between your workers and the produce except at planting and harvest time. Everything else is probably done mechanically or, you know, the produce grows on its own. You don't need people there. Mm -hmm. um, but in one of these ponics systems where the production is much more intensive, you do need people there every day in the same area as your produce. So the health of those people is paramount to keeping your food safe. Mm -hmm. And if you have an employee who has any kind of gut illness, you want to make sure that they stay home. Right. And then the training of those workers is, it's something that the folks in my circles keep coming back to because it is the, the thing that stands in between the pathogen and the produce mm -hmm. is your worker and their understanding of the, the food mm -hmm. safety mm -hmm. issues. So what we're trying to do at NECAFs is to develop materials that are going to meet these growers and educators and regulators where they are mm -hmm. um, with, you know, digestible information in the ways that they like to receive it. So, for mm -hmm. example, a lot of growers I've spoken to, they ask for like two minute videos that mm -hmm. they can pull out on their phone in the moment and show to someone mm -hmm. rather than having a, you know, four hour training to sit through. Right. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's where some of the tailoring comes in and where we're trying to really understand what's happening on the ground so that we can best help the people who are having to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. How often should growers be monitoring their water quality? That's a great question that I get a lot. And what I ask in response is, what do you mean by water quality? Mm. Um, so I don't know if you want to respond or. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the most qualified. Okay. To, um, maybe you could talk about a couple different scenarios yeah, of yeah. water quality um, meetings. So, so at the broadest level, we have like the, the chemical water quality. So what nutrients are dissolved in that water? And then we have the biological water quality where we're looking at the foodborne pathogens we're worried about um, when it comes to produce safety. So it's, it's a, I guess it's a part of running a successful 
onyx operation that you're able to manage that chemical water quality appropriately for your crops because otherwise you won't be successful because mm-hmm. the plants need you to do that for them. But in terms of microbiological water quality, um, so that's the germs in the water, the typical indicator people use is generic E. coli. So that's mm-hmm. all, all subtypes, all strains of E. coli. But we know, and I mentioned it earlier, that E. coli isn't going to be the best indicator of risk in this type of system. Right. So people are working on figuring out you know, what would be a better indicator organism. Um, but for now, the pathogens that I would focus on would be listeria and salmonella. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might differ depending on whether, say you have vents that are open to the air, you might be more worried about birds coming in and you might look for salmonella. Mm-hmm. If you have a totally indoor system and the thing you might be more worried about would be, say, the cracks in your concrete floor, then you would want to do an environmental monitoring program for listeria. Hmm. And there are, you know, environmental monitoring program is a phrase that's tossed around um, and that those happen a lot in, you know, food processing operations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is something that can be applied to an indoor operation in order to better understand what your risks might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And that can mean testing not just the water, but also areas around the water so that you understand where things might be coming from. Mm. And once you, okay, so I'm going to just keep adding <laughs> yeah, things. Go down um, the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that's important to understand is that one set of pathogen tests is not going to help you to understand what your risk might be. You need mm. to sort of start with a profile where you do multiple tests so you understand over time whether your water is changing in the pathogen presence or load. Mm-hmm. And then you also understand whether or not the pathogen you're testing for is a concern in your operation. If you do a lot of tests and they're all negative, mm-hmm. then you might be able to, from that point on, space the tests out a lot more and mm-hmm. sort of be able to assume based on your previous evidence that you're maintaining um, a low level of that mm-hmm. organism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Seems like a whole nother ball game of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, the, the impact of these invisible organisms that are living all over our skin and on Mm -hmm. the ground and on everything that's around us, um, the impact that that has is pretty profound. And once Mm -hmm. you start to explore it, you sort of never run out of questions to ask. Right. Yeah. Because we are in the ecosystem as well. So So based off of the growing conditions of some of these PONIC operations, is it possible or advantageous for growers to forego a post-harvest wash or use other dry cleaning methods? I'm really glad you asked that um, because a lot of folks just sort of intuitively assume that produce should be washed after it's harvested. Mm -hmm. And that probably comes from, you know, traditional field agriculture where there is likely soil all over the produce Mm -hmm. um, if it's a, you know, produce that grows near the ground. And so it makes sense to do that. 
But if you are growing in a system where you don't have, again, contact between that edible portion and the water or the substrate that the plant is growing in. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to physically prevent that contact, then there's likely no reason for you to wash that produce. Mm -hmm. As long as you're preventing things like bird intrusion um, and you're appropriately assessing the crop for any sort of possible damage, then you can be pretty sure that that crop is going to be safe because it hasn't come into contact with anything that might carry a pathogen. Mm -hmm. And so adding a wash step can actually negatively impact the quality of the and the shelf life of Mm -hmm. the produce. And it can potentially cross contaminate between one contaminated piece and the rest of that batch. Um, if you're not uh, maintaining the right sanitizer level in that water. So it adds Mm -hmm. a whole other set of water conditions you have to manage. Um, Mm -hmm. And if there's not uh, a good reason to do it, I would would actually lean toward not washing, especially Mm -hmm. things like leafy greens. Right. Well, that makes sense. Let's see. This is kind of like a fun bonus question that is less land related, but let's just say humans get to space and that's, we figured it out. Is Ponics the way of the agriculture of space? Is that the only way? What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Huh? I don't, I'm not going to say it's the only way because I I think we, there's always room for innovation. But I will say that there's a lot of active research on doing ponics in space. And I actually have a friend who I went to grad school with who's on one of those NASA grants. Oh, wow. Looking at aquaponics, Mm -hmm. because especially that where you have a lot of nutrient conservation and you're producing Mm -hmm. both protein and produce, that's very appealing. Um, And again, with the, the resource conservation that you can achieve, especially with water and nutrients, it makes a lot of sense for mm-hmm. when you're in space in a closed system mm-hmm. where you, you're not getting any sort of external um, resources. So yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that at some point in my career, I end up working on some of that <laughs> because cool. it's really yeah. exciting to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. But let's just say for now, it is also very good for earth systems as well. <laughs> uh, maybe for some of our more resource strained communities out there. Yeah, and it's interesting, the the controlled environment, agriculture makes you think about what the external environment is and what Mm -hmm. needs to be controlled to achieve your goal. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Great. Well, do you have any final words of advice to growers who might be thinking about incorporating a PONIC system into their operation or maybe some continual advice for people that already have, you know, a good PONIC system? (laughs) Um, I think that if you if you haven't started, that's probably the best place to be from a food safety standpoint, because you can start with mm-hmm. that in mind. And if mm-hmm. you've done that, then you're ahead of the game. Because mm-hmm. for most folks, and this is true in ponics and in other agriculture, you figure out all of the stuff you need to do to make it work. And then the food safety comes later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And if you're yeah. able to sort of incorporate that into everything from the get-go that makes it a lot easier Mm -hmm. and uh, it also creates a again a a sort of culture of food Mm -hmm. safety where everyone's on the same page about it 
And I think it's also important to make sure that um, your personnel feel comfortable bringing up any issues mm. to whoever they should, and that there's no sort of fear of pointing out problems. Right. Yeah. Good food safety foundations. Yeah. And also, you know, the produce safety, food safety in general is, it's not a competitive issue. We all want the produce Mm -hmm. and all of our food to be safe and any outbreak negatively impacts everyone. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm really excited by the the collaborative spirit I've seen already in the industry. um, Mm -hmm. And I hope that that continues. That's awesome. Do you have any ideas of the future of aquaponics and hydroponics besides space? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that a lot of advances will come as we figure out how to change our energy production hmm. because um, once we're able to have more decentralized, you know, sort of like on-site solar production or wind hmm. production, then that mm-hmm. can support these types of operations in places that they might otherwise not work or they might not make sense environmentally or economically. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the Food Safety Dish. This was a really interesting conversation. I personally learned a lot, so I'm hoping that will also be the case for our listeners. So thank you, Sean. Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate it. And if you are interested in learning more about NFU and the work that we do, check out our website at www.nfu.org. And thank you to our sponsor. This podcast is supported by the Food and Drug Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as a part of a financial assistance award, 2U01FD006921-03, totaling $1 million with 100% funding by FDA HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of nor an endorsement by FDA, HHS, or the U.S. government. I'm Catherine Kavanaugh, and this is the Food Safety Dish. Until next time, 